Hello and welcome to the Early Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Roper. I'm a certified midwives assistant and a neurodevelopmental delay therapist. For my primary job, I own a private therapy practice for children with developmental delays called Early Roots. I also work part-time for a midwifery practice in Colorado Springs called Mountain Miracles, where I assist at births and provide postpartum care to moms and babies. Today's episode is all about genetics, and if you've listened to my podcast before, you'll know that I talk a lot about the connection between primitive reflexes, poor brain development, and diagnoses like ADHD and autism. And when I'm talking to parents or other professionals about this, one of the main responses I get is, but I thought it was genetic. And the simple answer is yes, it is genetic. There is a strong genetic connection between both ADHD and autism. We know that it runs in families. We know that if someone in your immediate family has an ADHD diagnosis, you're more likely to have one yourself. I read recently one estimate that said they suspected between 70 and 80% of ADHD was genetic. And I don't know whether these numbers are accurate or not. They might be. But I do know that this statement is very misleading. My goal for this episode is to help explain the role of genetics and how it connects to developmental delays like ADHD and autism. And in order to understand this connection, I think it's first important to have some understanding of how these diagnoses work. So a diagnosis for ADHD or autism is symptoms-based, meaning if a person has enough symptoms in enough environments for enough time, then they'll qualify for a diagnosis. There aren't any biological tests that confirm these diagnoses, and the diagnosis itself tells you nothing about the etiology of these symptoms, meaning the cause or the root origin of symptoms. And this is different from other diagnoses like Down syndrome, where you can run genetic tests and look at the chromosomal makeup of a person and get a diagnosis that way. With ADHD and autism, there's also a huge spectrum of symptoms and severities. And keeping with the Down syndrome example, there's also a spectrum of symptoms, and there's some variations in presentation and even in genetic makeup, but they're much more limited than what you see with ADHD or autism. So something that you have to keep in mind when giving or getting a diagnosis that is symptom-based is that there's a much greater margin of error. There's a lot of subjectivity and bias that can go into this diagnosis. There's also a lot of variety in what can contribute to those symptoms. And I'm working on writing an episode on the history of diagnoses where we'll go into a lot more detail about this. But for now, know that there's a lot of non-genetic factors that affect whether or not you'll receive a diagnosis. Things like socioeconomic status, postal code, early traumatic experiences, and whether or not you're in foster care. Another thing to consider is that we're seeing an explosion of autism diagnoses. In the 1970s, the diagnosis rate was less than 1 in 5,000. Today, it's 1 in 36. And there are likely multiple factors that influence these numbers, including awareness. But if awareness was the only factor, you would see a lot more older adults getting diagnosed. And there are likely some. There are probably some people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who have a missed autism diagnosis, but certainly not one in 36. 
So when you have an explosion like this, there has to be an environmental or social factor. When we are talking about something like ADHD or autism, we're talking about a highly complex interplay of social, emotional, cognitive, behavioral, biological, and developmental problems and factors. When people hear that they're genetic, or even worse, when they're 70 to 80% genetic, it puts this complex problem into a very simple box. What's worse, it takes away the responsibility that we have as a society to prevent these problems. There are a lot of amazing professionals who are dedicating their lives to treating these problems and helping children, adults, and their families heal and improve their lives and health. This is a great thing, but science and our understanding of these problems should focus not only on treatment, but also on prevention. But anyway, I'll get back to the topic on hand, which is genetics. The first big important thing to know about genetics is that they aren't black and white. When most people think about our genes, they think of something very concrete and absolute. If you have a certain gene, you will always have very specific, consistent characteristics associated with that gene. A lot of people also think about genes as something that's set at birth, that you're given your genetic code by your parents, and that's that. In the psychology and medical fields, there have been debates for decades on the role of genetics and how much of an influence genetics has versus our experience, the classic nature versus nurture debate. And while there is still some debate on what percentage influences each, eventually the consensus became that both play an important role and you can't look at only one. In more recent years, this debate became even more complex with the introduction of the study of epigenetics, which is the way that our environment and experiences influence our genes. We now know that this nature versus nurture debate is far more complex than we originally thought. We know that our genes aren't set at birth. We have a whole chunk of genetic code that gets turned on or off based on our environment and our experiences. We also know that certain environmental experiences, like extreme stress, not only alter our genetic code, but can be passed down generationally for at least three generations and possibly more. This means that to some extent, your genetic code is influenced not only by your own experiences, but also by the experiences of your parents, grandparents, and likely generations before that. When you consider this, it changes the way most people think about genetics. In the example of ADHD, we know that there is a genetic component. We know that if you have a parent or sibling with ADHD, you are significantly more likely to develop ADHD yourself. And this is true of other diagnoses like autism as well. They run in families. So let's look at what this means exactly. I think that the best way to look at the role of genetics in disorders like ADHD or autism is that they provide a sensitivity. Your genetic code can make you more or less sensitive to developing certain diseases or disorders. They can make you more or less sensitive to retaining primitive reflexes or reacting to certain foods or traumatic experiences, which all can contribute to ADHD symptoms. This interaction between environment, experience, and genes is very complex. So let's look more at what we mean when it says things run in families. Obviously, one aspect of this is your literal genetic code. It gets passed down from your parents and grandparents, but they also pass down other things as well. 
For example, if your mother experienced something traumatic that altered her genetic code before she gave birth to you, then you get that alteration passed down to you. During your pregnancy, when you are developing in the womb, your mother also passes on many things. Her stress and arousal states, her emotional experiences, her nutritional and toxic exposures, and so much more. After birth, your parents and the people who care for you pass on things as well. Family cultures, diets, emotional states, arousal states, attachments, and social connections all get passed down. These things aren't genetic, they're environmental, and yet they also run in families. And this makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to truly study genetics separate from experience. Even if you look at genetically identical twins, there are environmental factors that they will both share and environmental factors that will be different. They both develop in the same womb, and you'll see environmental exposures that they share. But there may also be things that are different. They may receive different levels of nutrition and other physiological factors. And their births may be different. One may be born vaginally while the other is born by cesarean. One may be head down and the other breech. And yet they are developing in the same womb and born in the same family. From a scientific perspective, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to truly separate genetics and experience. And like I mentioned before, the best way to look at genetics in relation to developmental delays is that they provide a sensitivity to certain reactions. For example, you may have two babies who experience similar birth complications and are both born by cesarean. One baby may experience long-term complications like reduced immune function or retained primitive reflexes, while the other may not. In any specific situation, there are likely many, many factors that influence why one baby may have complications and another is fine. Their genetic code is one of those factors. For some babies, their genetic code makes them more susceptible to long-term complications related to their birth, but for another baby, their genetic code may give them a level of resiliency. The reality is that we don't know for sure what genes make some people more susceptible and some people more resilient. We also tend to lump anything we don't have an answer to into that genetic box. I have read through many, many screening questionnaires from parents where I ask a lot about known risk factors for developmental delays. Most of the time, these questionnaires are consistent. Kids have multiple early risk factors like pregnancy and birth complications, and then they have symptoms that match. Every once in a while, though, I'll get one where a child has all of the symptoms and little to none of the known risk factors. In those situations, we have to wonder why. It either has something to do with their genetics or with some other risk factor that we don't know about yet or that we can't really measure. One thing I tell parents to consider in these situations is that we're currently living in a toxic soup of chemicals that's unlike anything we have had in the past. Even if you and your family eat really clean and work hard to eliminate toxins, chemicals, and phthalates in your diet and home, you will still be exposed. The reality is we have no idea how these things may affect a particular individual, especially early in the womb. I think it's safe to assume that just existing in our current environment is a risk factor. And that's just one thing. There are lots of other things as well. For example, immediate cord clamping after birth. If you don't know what I mean, I'll explain super quick. 
At the time of birth, babies have about one-third to one-half of their blood supply outside of their body, circulating through their umbilical cord and their placenta. As they begin breathing, their circulation changes, and that blood gets pumped back to them over the course of anywhere from 5 to 60 minutes. For a long time, it's been standard practice to clamp the cord immediately at birth, depriving babies of a huge portion of their blood supply. We now have tons of data on how bad that is for their health. When this happens, babies start off their life with reduced oxygen and iron stores, which directly impact neurological development and health. Really, our oxygenation affects every aspect of our health. But yet, this is not something that most people consider when screening for developmental delays. It can take children between 6 and 12 months to make up for that loss of iron stores. That means that they are functioning at suboptimal health during the first 6 to 12 months of their life when brain development is exploding. This is also true for things like mouth breathing. The way we breathe has a huge impact on our physical and developmental health, and yet most of the time this isn't something that is considered when looking at developmental delays either. When you are looking at things like health and neurological development, there are so many factors that go into it. There are lots of things that contribute to good or poor health. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to pick apart each of these things. When you throw genetics into the mix, it becomes even more complicated. The main thing to keep in mind is that our genetics make us more or less sensitive to our environment and experience. And if you ever feel like you lost the genetic lottery, remember that just like negative experiences can negatively impact our genetics, positive experiences and healing also change our genetics and our body. You aren't enslaved to your genetics and your family history, and taking charge of your health will not only impact you, but could also impact future generations in a positive way. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a child that you're worried about, or if you're a fellow health nerd, feel free to reach out to me. I have more information on my website, earlyrootstherapy.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something helpful. (music) 